beautiful day, and if the weather holds well tomorrow um, and we don't get the ice pellets, please feel free to join me in the fireside room at 11 uh, for a prayer time between 11 and 11.30 before the joy luncheon. Uh, But we will see. If I can't make it down, I will text Keith. Oh, has it? Did I miss that? I was out greeting somebody. Okay, so the joy luncheon was canceled. Okay, so if we have ice pellets, I won't feel as bad not being able to make it down in regards to that. But anyhow, it's great to be here this morning. It was a nice drive down. The weather's beautiful today. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father in heaven. We thank you for your love and your kindness. We thank you for the opportunity to join together in worship. We thank you for the young faces, the young people that are here today, uh, the opportunity and the great privilege and responsibility that we have to minister into their lives, to share the gospel message with them and to pray for them, to pray that they might grow in their knowledge and that they might come in to you in repentance and desire to have a relationship with you. Father, this morning as we look into your word, Father, we ask that you'll uh, help us to push away from our mind the thoughts that may crowd out our ability to just focus at this time. Father, there's worries and concerns around us because of the world we live in, and then there are things that creep closer to home. And we pray that this morning we might be able to focus on your word and that we will leave those worries and cares in your hand. So we thank you again for this opportunity to join together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we moved into our present home in London, um, across the street from us, there was a, a neighbor, and he was a character. And I have many stories, but Gus Black was a great neighbor. And, and some of the stories Gus would tell us were stories of when his family first arrived in Canada. And when he came here, um, his first, first few years in Canada, first settling into Canada, were not the best. So they had settled elsewhere, the, uh, outside of London, and then they eventually relocated to London. And when they made that relocation to London, their father decided to change their last name in hopes that it would help a little bit. So they arrived in Canada right around the end of the First World War. And their last name was Schwartz. And they suffered a lot of backlash because of their German descent. They suffered a lot simply because of the anti-German sentiments that were very prevalent in Canada at that time. And they suffered that even though their family had not been directly part of the war in any way. Well, Jonah carried anti-Assyrian sentiments. Jonah carried those sentiments because of the brutality that he had heard that was part of the nation of Assyria. The brutality that was shown as they began to flex their military muscle in the Mesopotamian region. See, in 883 BC, Assyria had expanded into Mesopotamia. By 887 the army made it within 125 kilometers of Damascus. And in the years 849, 845, and 841, Assyria made three unsuccessful attempts to gain control of all of Syria. Then there was a little reprieve until 832, when once again, Assyria was in Syria, laying siege to Damascus. 
It failed. However, Jonah would be familiar with these events, with the cruelty and brutality of the invading army. It's highly probable that Jonah meant refugees. Refugees from armed conflicts don't just happen today. They happened throughout history. So, high probability, Jonah from north Israel would have meant those who fled the cruel ways of the Assyrian army. And it was to this nation, it was to the nation of Assyria, to the capital of Nineveh, that Jonah was called to take his message. But rather than welcoming the assignment, what does Jonah do? Well, Jonah ran down to Joppa. Then he ran down to the harbor and down into the hull of the ship to escape to Tarsus. And and as that ship made its way into the open seas of the Mediterranean, the Lord sent a great wind. A great storm came upon that ship and tossed it around. So we have an unrepentant Jonah running from God. And as he runs from God, the sailors decide to find out who is responsible for all this. So they turn to that old custom of casting lots, and by God's providence, it fell upon Jonah. But Jonah's solution, Jonah's solution to the problem to calm the seas was to throw him overboard. To throw him into the waters. He preferred death to obedience. This part of Jonah's life drips with irony. Why? Because, jo- because the sailors, the sailors were more concerned with the life of the prophet than Jonah was with all of Nineveh. So the sailors tried to row ashore. They desperately tried to make it ashore, but they could not. And eventually, given enough time, they reluctantly decided to throw Jonah overboard as asked. (coughs) And as Jonah hits the Mediterranean Sea with a splash, the Mediterranean begins to calm down at the command of the Lord. The the mariners on board, as they watched the sea calmed, and as they took everything in, they began to understand that Jonah's God was more powerful than the gods that they worshipped and had turned to. Their response was one of worship, to begin to worship the God of Israel and offer vows and to offer sacrifices. Meanwhile, Jonah is beginning to sink into his watery grave. And as he sinks, he has a change of heart and he calls out to the Lord. And his journey downward is interrupted by a great fish. That fish was sent by the Lord. So so the, the running prophet now shows himself then to be also an unrepentant prophet. Jonah was thankful that his life was spared. That was for sure. But there is never indication that he regretted running from God in the first place. 
Then three days later, he is spewed onto the shoreline. And on that shoreline, God recommissions him. So the, the, the running, unrepentant, recommissioned prophet then adds another name to himself. That name is reluctant. He reluctantly enters the city of Nineveh proclaiming a very, very short message. And I quote, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. How would you like me to come up and say that one Sunday morning and then finish? The response of the people, and again I will quote, The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. The king's response went even further. When the king of Nineveh heard that Jonah was say, what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap. He sat on a heap of ashes. And then he sent out a declaration. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. And everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. That's a recap, a review of where we've been so far. And this week we catch up to Jonah in what should be a, a time of celebration. Nineveh had repented. That should be celebrated. Uh, in Every time you and I hear of someone repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ should be an occasion for celebration. In Luke chapter 15 verse 10 we read this. Just so, or in the same way I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And make sure you hear that correctly. Who is filled with joy? It's joy before the angels. So who is filled with joy? God is filled with joy every time a sinner repents. If God is filled with joy when someone repents, we should be filled with joy. Let's pick up where we left off. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the, of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The text is clear. God observed a change in the lives of the Ninevites. Mark Yarborough in his book, Beyond the Tale, Beyond the Tale of a Whale, stated it this way. To be sure, the external change was fruit from a sincere inward decision to think differently about the God of Israel. This is the most encouraging part 
of all of Jonah. How God's grace extends beyond the borders of Israel. God's grace extends beyond the covenant to the nation of Israel, to a nation that some might classify as unredeemable. A term that means nothing to our Lord. No one is beyond God's saving grace. Our God loves to show his unmerited, has said, to anyone who will repent. Now, if if the book of Jonah was a fairy tale, this would be a great place to end. They hear the message of God to repent, and Nineveh repents. What a way to end a story. The only better ending might be if we added something that Jonah understood the air of his way, and he also repented, and then began to rejoice with his new brothers in the Lord in Nineveh. But any thought of it being a fairy tale is quickly dashed as we begin chapter 4. See, as greatly, as, as greatly pleased was God, Jonah was displeased, greatly displeased with what happened. Look at verse 1 to chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The the Christian Standard Bible puts it this way, and I think it really captures the emotion here. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He wasn't just upset. He was furious. But why was was Jonah so angry? I mean, as, as a missionary or an evangelist or a prophet, he was a success. See, prophets to take the message of the word of the Lord to people. Jonah did that. And and, and people repented. They responded to that message in godly sorrow. And that wasn't always the case with God's prophets. But Jonah was exceedingly angry. That would be akin to saying, if you're familiar with Billy Sunday or Billy Graham, that every time someone responded and came forward and wanted to know more about Jesus Christ and wanted to repent and, and, and wanted to profess faith, that they got angry and upset with it. In, in rabbinical writings, it, it, it tells us that, and they begin to speculate why Jonah was angry, and their speculation is that, well, because what he predicted didn't happen, he would now be considered a false prophet. And that's why he was angry. However, Scripture is clear. Repentance may bring about a different outcome if people will only repent. Remember David? David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 14 to 23. This is the story of uh, the child that was born by Bathsheba out of that relationship she had with David when she was still married to Uriah. And the child was, was going to die. And God had brought judgment on the family. And, and David went before the Lord. And he cried. And, and he wouldn't eat. And he prayed. Fully believing that his penitence may spare the child. However, that was not the case. The child died. And what was David's response at the point when the child died? 
Do you recall what he did? He went to the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 27 through 29, you'll find there the confrontation over Naboth's vineyard. And this one has a bit different of an outcome. You'll recall when Naboth wouldn't sell uh, King Ahab his land for a, a vegetable garden, Queen Jezebel took matters into her hands. Queen Jezebel had some trumped-up charges against Naboth. And from those trumped-up charges, Naboth was stoned and put to death. And, and, and God had pronounced judgment on Ahab. And that's a much longer conversation of the culpability of, of Ahab in this. But God had pronounced judgment. And hearing that judgment, Ahab responds in humility and in repentance. And God relents and disaster is averted. So here we have repentance by the Ninevites. God's mercy to them would not make Jonah a false prophet. So where was Jonah's displeasure? Where did it come from? I mean, when you read it, it's, it's complete satire. It makes so, no sense for Jonah to be upset. That's until you understand reluctance, obedient, reluctant obedience is not obedience of the heart. Did you catch that? Reluctant obedience is not obedience of the heart. Jonah's heart was not right with the Lord, and his actions followed his heart. See, if your heart is not right with God, your actions will not fully follow the Lord. You'll be robbed of joy as Jonah was here. This should have been a time of celebration, but it turned into an opportunity of complaining and griping. I want to stop for a moment here. I want you to think of the nation of Israel. In all that the nation of Israel witnessed when God brought them out of Egypt. So God sent plagues on on Egypt. Including the death of the firstborn child. Israel was spared those plagues. And if Israel followed the direction of Moses, the angel of death would pass over and they would be spared the death of their firstborn too. Then the nation leaves Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. And then when Pharaoh changes his mind and he chases them down with his army, what happens? The Lord takes care of the chariots. The Lord takes care of Pharaoh's army as the nation of Israel crosses the Red Sea. Then the Lord provides bread and quail from heaven for the people. And then when they're thirsty... When they are in need, you would think they'd still be rejoicing having watched the hand of God and all that had happened. And that because of that need they have for water now, that they would go to the Lord and just let their requests be known. He's provided in the past. That should be an indication that he would provide in the future. But they hadn't learned that. Their response They began to complain and they began to badger Moses. 
I can't help but think of the life of the church, of any church almost. When God blesses and it's a time for celebration, it's a time to be exuberant over God's grace and His goodness and His mercy that's happening in our midst. While most will follow that in a church, there always seems to be someone who is unhappy. And, And like Jonah, they have a complaint. They're never satisfied. And often those complaints are a result of the same condition that Jonah suffers from here. Self-centeredness. Not everything went according to their plan. It wasn't done exactly how they would do it. Then off goes an email to church leadership. Or, or gossip takes root as they try to find those who will agree with them. And I'm not saying church leadership should never be asked the tough questions because they should be. But if you're the one always asking the question, if you're the one that finds themselves always on the outside looking in, I think it's time to ask yourself some tough questions. There is a point when one's busybody-like activities and complaining and talking to everyone becomes a sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, we read this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers." Just a few verses before that, in verses 12 through 14, we read, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, singles with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. See, discord, drawing others into dissension or strife, they're powerful words. For some, rather than having the preservation of the local body, selfishness takes root. And honestly, I don't understand why people at that point who are not right with the Lord, and, and, and why they just don't find a church that they like instead of sowing discord, instead of causing issues. But my suspicion is this. If your heart's not right with the Lord, No church will be good enough. Jonah's heart was selfish. See, a man who had received grace on more than one occasion, who was to exemplify grace, had none to give to others. Look at his complaint in verse 2 of chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is it not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abundantly abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, there's no record of those words being ushered, uttered, but perhaps... Jonah uttered them underneath his breath. Perhaps he thought them in his mind. It it doesn't really matter. 
we now have the reason why Jonah ran from God. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. How silly does that sound? How self-centered is that? Those character qualities make me want to run to God. Those character qualities want me to make that a, a central message of my life to share with people. But Jonah, I think Jonah was also blinded by his hatred. Just as in the opening illustration, Gus as a young boy in Canada was guilty of nothing more than having a German last name. People were blinded by the events in Europe, and those of German descent suffered because of it. I once worked with a, with a, a person that hated Israel. They were borderline anti-Semitic. They had never been to Israel. They didn't grow up in the Middle East. Not me. They had no relatives at all in that area. A matter of fact, they came from South Asia. They settled in the U.S. of their own free will for work, and then they relocated later to Canada. See, this hatred for the Jewish people blinded them from ever seeing Israel in in any other light but as the ever-aggressor, always the one responsible for all the ills of the Middle East, and always should be held accountable for them. It's, it's too easy to let any conflict that we're involved with, it's too easy to begin to dehumanize people that we struggle against with. I, I can think of believers who have had to learn to love their enemies. And we're not talking about the guy at work who roots for the Montreal Canadiens. We do have those here, don't we? No. And we're not talking about the person that picks on you or criticizes you at work. I'm thinking of Corey Tenboon, who had to ask the Lord to help her to forgive the guard that she ran into that was from the concentration camp where her sister died. It was not long ago I read a story about Sabina Wormbrand from the pulpit at the end of World War II as as people were hunting down and trying to get at German soldiers and officers so they could lynch them, lynch mobs. She hid them. She had watched the brutality of the oppressor and the occupier of Romania murder neighbors and torture neighbors, but she protected these men from mob justice and showed them grace and love. See, hate at any level can blind a person. And it can blind someone who professes to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. If hate's not dealt with, we begin to make poor choices. And don't be fooled by this idea that we're too advanced as a civilization. Atrocities continue to happen in our world. And they happen because at the root of it, sin. They happen because hate is sin. Look at the polarization in our political realm. Uh, The debate over abortion and the transgender ideology. Look at the rape and the murders and the looting and the burning from the summer of love 
back in 2020. Atrocities still happen. But yes, sin needs to be called out. And Jonah did that. But Jonah called out not out of a heart that was expressing grace, a grace that was freely given to him, the same grace that was given to us. Jonah didn't call out for repentance based on Romans 5.8 and understanding that but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, to mature in faith means to love the unlovely, to pursue them. Why? Because we once were the unlovely. The sign of a person growing spiritually is to understand and to live out the truth of that. See, if you've been the recipient of grace, you are called to be a grace giver. Let me say that again. A person who has received grace should be a giver of grace. See, even on the cross, as Jesus was being crucified, one of the thieves, one of the robbers next to him, looks over to him and expresses repentance. He, he understood that he deserved to die. And, and he asked Jesus to remember him. And Christ extended grace. Another truth we need to remember and we can learn from Jonah. A title does not automatically make a person spiritually mature. Nor does it mean that they're growing in Christ. Whether it's the title pastor, elder, deacon, Sunday school teacher, worship leader, youth leader. Each has a responsibility to ensure that you continue to grow and pursue a relationship with God. And that you continue to express grace to those around you. See, Jonah's home country, Israel is a testimony to God's undeserved grace. Jonah himself, at at this timeline, on this point of time in the timeline, is possibly only a few weeks removed, maybe a month, from experiencing God's undeserving favor. He was sinking to his watery grave. In chapter 2, God gave him grace and saved him. But Jonah's refusal to show grace to Nineveh and his subsequent prayer presents more like a child talking back to... That's me, isn't it? You don't know what it is. That's okay. We'll try not to move the arm too much. But it really is when you look at it. It's more like a a, a child, a parent being talked at by their child. It wasn't a reverent prayer. See, Jonah is missing the tensions found in Scripture. God is a righteous God. He will bring justice. But God is also a God of compassion and mercy. Jonah struggles with this tension, and it's ever-present even today. In my reading and in person, I meet those who demand justice. The people deserve to get it. Their speech can be condemning their fault-finding toward believer and other unbelievers alike. They set themselves up as judge, jury, and executioner. 
So when people sin and, or slip up or however you want to state it, they're quick to judge and they're quick to point it out. And they make demands of these outward signs that measure up to whatever they think penitence looks like or should look like. Unfortunately for them, often it looks like somebody groveling before man. And that's not what it is. There are times when you and I become aware of others' sins. And we must trust God that He will deal with that person and that He will use those that are already involved in the situation. We can pray for their repentance. We can pray for their restoration. But beyond that, there are times when, frankly, we need to mind our own business. The same individuals and churches that will act like this will state that they understand their own sinfulness before God and how undeserving they are. However, when we truly understand our sinfulness before a holy God, I think we'll begin to bear the fruit of compassion and mercy, attributes found in our Heavenly Father. And Jonah lacked these. So do we grieve over the loss of families in Ukraine and in Russia? Men and women who have lost their lives in war, how many have gone to a Christless eternity? I understand who the aggressor is, and I pray for peace. But there's, there's tension there. War crimes have been committed. Atrocities have and still occur. And I believe Jonah struggled with these same issues. Assyria was brutal, and it took, uh, he took a message to them, and then they repented. And likely some of those who repented were some of those who carried out those terrible things to other nations and other people. But they were forgiven. Hate can get hold of us, and it can make us do terrible things. It's easy to classify ourselves as different. It's easy to think, oh, I'm not that bad. And we begin to justify ourselves. But we forget sin is sin. And sin breaks fellowship with a holy God. We have to take all these things before the Lord. And we have to forgive. I know these are tough words. But look at what hatred did to Jonah. This is why we can't do it alone. We can't do it in our own power. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives to give us the strength to forgive and to give us the love we need to love others and to have compassion as God has compassion and to show mercy as God does. Retaliation is not ours. God has set up human governments to mete out justice. And that's where we need to leave our desire for justice. We need to leave it with the Lord and what the Lord has established. Now, this, this is not to say that we excuse sin or, or we even bless sin, as we've seen from a recent statement from the Archbishop of Canterbury, a call for the Anglican Church to bless same-sex relationships, which Scripture calls sinful. The issue even being stated is sinful. So we live in tension. We need to preach that the wages of sin is death. We also need to preach the 
free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If a person will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, we need to do it in grace. Jonah should have understood this. It's what's taught in Exodus. At one of Israel's darkest moments, when they were caught worshiping the golden calf, Shortly after that, Moses asked, as he pleads for Israel, Moses asked to see God's glory. And God agrees. But he says, you can't look at my face. Let me read to you from Exodus. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no no means clear the guilty. Those same attributes of God are proclaimed again and again in the Old Testament. They're referred to in Numbers. They're referred to in Nehemiah, in the Psalms, and in Joel. Let me read to you from Nehemiah 9. Verse 17, they refused to obey and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. And again in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. See, Jonah is self-centered, and in his self-centered, hate-induced pity party, he seeks justice, and he's blinded to the other characteristics and other attributes of God characteristics that make him God, that make him transcendent from who we are. Jonah failed to fully comprehend what and who he was before God. And it's ironic, but he was willing to admit that this was part of God's character. He had said, I knew that you were are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. In his refusal to submit, that's exactly what he quotes. And then what's he say? I'm beginning to think Jonah's default position when he doesn't get his way is, can be summed up in a temper tantrum. Look, look what he says in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. There he goes again, just like in chapter 2. I got a bit of chuckle out of this, especially how the New Living Translated worded it. See, when we were working with junior high, we would have kids, both boys and girls alike, who would deliberately over-exaggerate to manipulate situations. That's the very definition of the slang term or phrase, drama queen. And if they acted that way, I would call them out. Jonah fits into this category. And this isn't the first time he's resorted to, just kill me, Lord. He did it back in chapter 1. 
Just throw me into the sea and the problem will be solved. Well, there was a a better solution, just as there is a better solution here. But not according to Jonah. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Let's review some things we know concerning Jonah. I don't want you to miss them, so we're going to review them. Jonah was a Hebrew and he was a prophet. He knew the spiritual lingo. He knew the holy lingo of, uh, of the word. He understood the Torah. He could quote the Psalms. He preached the word and he had called people to God. He himself had experienced God's undeserving grace by being rescued from a great fish. But he could not love. Jonah could not love the Ninevites because he hated them. Love and hate can't coexist. Jonah is an example of not being able to love those you hate. Mark Yarborough summed it up in his commentary this way, which I thought was very well done and worth reading. We can do all the right things. We can go through the motions. We can quote the word. We can recall the books of the Bible and the Ten Commandments. We are great with sword drills. We can say prayers. We can talk and sing about the grace of God. We can marvel at His unmerited favor extended to us. Nevertheless, do we love our neighbor? Do we chase the unlovely because we had been unlovely? Here is the crux of the issue. Jonah couldn't love because Jonah did not understand God's love for him. And isn't that the question to us this morning? Do we understand God's love for us? I think the only way to really understand God's love for us is to understand that we are in the same swamp that the Ninevites were flailing around with as they committed their atrocities and brutality. The the same swamp that they were rescued from, you and I were rescued from. We lived in our sin. We were separated from God before He rescued us. It's the same swamp that all men live in before they come to Christ. And why why were we rescued? We were rescued by a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. We're generally very good at understanding the depths of depravity to which man can descend. We can even recognize those who currently live in those conditions. We can even recognize those who have ascended out of depravity by the grace of God. But do we really realize, I mean really understand, that we too were rescued from that very same pit? I think it's too easy to think, oh, I'm not that bad. But see, God doesn't see a difference. Each of us is marred, a marred image bearer, and we're marred because of sin. And each of us are in need of a Savior. 
when we realize where we came from, the compassion and grace and mercy that God set on us, when we begin to understand God's great love for us, then we can understand and begin to plumb the depths of that love. And when we do that, we tend not to get as easily irritated with one another. We tend not to get as easily offended. Why? Because we see others deserving of the same compassion and the same love and mercy that has been shown to us. And when one comes to repentance and God lifts us up from that swamp and sets His Spirit in us, then we celebrate with one another. We celebrate that someone has come to faith in Christ. So let me end with a question as we leave Jonah for one more week. Do you understand God's love for you? And if you do understand that, go this week and love others with that same kind of love. Share the good news out of love that Jesus Christ died for sinners, but he offers them a free gift, a life anew in him. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your graciousness. We thank you that while you're a just and you will make all things wrong right, you're a God full of mercy and grace. Father, may we not be blinded by, by hatred. May we not be blinded by arrogancy, by selfishness. May we truly see those around us, Father. Bring opportunities this week for each person in this auditorium this morning to show that love and compassion, to be a grace giver because of the grace we have received from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.